Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. And I'm your millennial ER doc, Dr. Ward. And oh, I'm millennial. <laughs> I like it, millennial <laughs> ER doc. Our guest today is someone who we're excited to introduce. Let's meet James. Hi everybody, my name is James Ham. I'm an emergency physician in Honolulu, Hawaii. Let's start there. What's it like, because I know nobody believes me, what is it like living and working in Hawaii? You know, it's one of those things where the first few months, you know, you think it's like the best thing in the world. Um, and then there's this kind of sense of impending doom when uh, you think of like tsunamis and being on this rock in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, supposedly the most isolated island in uh, any part of the Pacific, supposedly, because of how far it is from other large bodies of land. So, you know, there's always these little kinds of things and they make these movies about disasters and all these things. and we have these disaster drills. Overall, it's pretty good. You know, the cost of milk is uh, two or three times, so I don't drink as much milk. Uh, it's okay. Josh is lactose intolerant, and I'm not a fan of milk. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and it's just it's just one of those things where you have to realize that everything that comes to Hawaii has to be on a boat. Great. That includes the patients, because I, I lived in Hawaii for, for some time, and I did some contract work there. And I asked because you seem genuinely happy every time I talk to you. And I remember three months into my six-month contract, I'd see somebody on a beach and I'd be like, God damn tourists. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I came to Hawaii through the military. So it was kind of a different way of coming in. So I, I came in as like an invader, you know, so it was kind of a little different approach. But a lot of my friends actually are from Hawaii and a lot of them actually moved back. So it was not hard for me to reconnect with them and have a group. I always call myself a permanent tourist. You know, I think that's a good approach to have here. But they ask you for your phone number, and it's still a mainland number because I don't know why I haven't changed. So it's well, I mean, you're not using you're not using the tin can and string by the professor. <laughs> exactly. Or the coconut. You know, but I have I have picked up on how to pronounce the names of the streets. You know, or the or the name of the state fish. You know, the, remember it? Humuhumu, nuku nuku, apua a. You know, just so you pronounce things properly now. It's just phonetic. Just kind of. Is roll. it also known as tuna? Uh, no, it's actually. <laughs> it's a luxury to be here, but you also pay a price. You know, the median house price now is seven hundred fifty-five thousand dollars. 
think as a physician you'll be okay and then you realize oh man I, I can barely afford the medium just kind of come to grips with it and you just realize hey I'm just like everybody else looking for a job trying to stay here on the island you came as as an invader you came from the military were you doing emergency medicine in the military as well or what tell us a little bit about your background I actually had a scholarship to go to medical school through the Army, and I ended up doing my residency in a kind of a combined military-civilian residency program with the University of Washington and Madigan Army Medical Center. And after residency, the Army definitely likes to utilize emergency physicians in multiple roles, and they kind of, around 2008 or so, they started to push emergency physicians towards these forward, call them battalion surgeons or brigade surgeons and uh, they're more or less just like physi- like field field uh, physicians you know for for a unit and you said they call them Italian surgeons uh, no a battalion like like like, oh, like an battalion. army battalion I was like that seems like a weird nickname hey I get to the Italian <laughs> no. surgeon over here exactly <laughs> there were jobs for me to go to work in an emergency department I was in Korea being, being Korean myself I thought it'd be great to work in an emergency department in Korea and go kind of internationally because that's why I kind of joined the military. Lo and behold, the position I somehow got assumed by somebody else. And uh, they said, hey, we have some options for you. You could go to Kansas or you could go to Kansas. And then, <laughs> so then I was like, I'm going to volunteer for a, a non-traditional hospital role and try to do one of these field positions. So I actually applied for and got this job as a brigade surgeon for the 130th Combat Engineer Brigade, which is a multifunctional engineer brigade that does everything from building bridges and schools to blowing up roadside bombs after you after they detect them being one of the first units into Germany during D-Day you know so there's it's a very historically cool unit and I thought hey this would be kind of fun being fresh out of residency I, I thought to myself hey they're engineers they're, they they wear pocket protectors and tape on their glasses and uh, that's the kind of what they do and so I thought that that's kind of who the, who I would be working with end up being the exact opposite. So it was kind of a rude awakening being in that unit, tasked to go to deploy to Afghanistan with them. It's kind of one of those things where, hey, you know, I'm ready for it. I'm trained. Let's go do what I'm trained to do. Soon, soon, lo and behold, they ended up retasking our unit to become the charge of all humanitarian engineer operations throughout the Pacific. So instead of going on this exciting deployment that I thought I would be ready for and going to do, being trained in emergency medicine and trained in you know, military trauma, I'm stuck in this job that I didn't really feel like I was trained for or ready to do. As opposed to, your, the exciting deployment option was to go to Afghanistan, and exactly. instead you were reassigned to Hawaii. No, 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 still be no. in Hawaii, still be in Hawaii, but from Hawaii, get ready and then deploy to Afghanistan. And instead, you know, I was stationed in Hawaii and then six months later, they were uh, more or less like, hey, well, you guys are going to the Philippines. We're going to be doing this humanitarian operation to win the hearts and minds of the Filipino people so that, you know, they'll embrace the American way and not the uh, the way of uh, the kind of the, you know, the terrorist organizations that are growing up there in the Philippines, you know. Did you build a Manny Pacquiao robot? <laughs> I did. I did try to be uh, Manny Pacquiao's doctor, though. I did. I did ask for that, and unfortunately, he didn't answer any of my emails. Was that your first exposure to humanitarian organizations and humanitarian missions? Yes, actually, it was. It was definitely more or less the American uh, approach to humanitarian aid, showing up and you know being uh, responsible for all the preventive health being responsible for not only are we taking care of our own troops but then later finding out and now I'm also in charge of running a, a humanitarian operation to take care of the, the Filipino people it was very interesting too because you're dealing with a lot of hard-headed you know combat engineer types who are you know very alpha and very uh, micromanaging posture to go you know fight in Afghanistan and now that same mentality and you're now in charge of building roads, building schools, building clinics in the, throughout the Philippines using, uh, you know, kind of a different approach when you were initially had plans to go build forward bases and roads and things like that in Afghanistan. And so how did you make that transition? It's difficult. You know, first, first try to get the right courses. So you know, the, the military sent me to the tropical medicine course in Bethesda, which was, which was awesome. You know, taking the test shy of becoming a diplomat in tropical medicine. So, you know, I tried to prepare myself in coursework and get mentally ready for some of the things that we would see in the Philippines and kind of be the travel doc, I guess, and making sure that all the soldiers, you know, got their Japanese encephalitis vaccine, you know, they got all the rest of their shots, their typhoid, et cetera, all up to date. Not something that I would ever see myself doing as an emergency physician. You know, I was not trained in that aspect, wasn't trained in organizing or arranging mass vaccination drives or whatnot. Just realize, hey, it's your job. It's what I'm supposed to be doing and just do it, you know. Now, you're in charge of these 
same projects now that you started on? Or are you still working with the Army engineers? No, I actually did two years with the Army. You know, after the deployment to the Philippines, we also did a, another combat engineer exercise like in Korea. But outside of those two, I actually was sent to Tripler Army Medical Center here in Honolulu to, to work as an emergency physician. Again, you know, I was hoping to go to Afghanistan in a deployment as a, an Army emergency physician. And the government furlough in 2012 kind of ruined that. So they ended up keeping me as an emergency physician alongside civilian emergency physicians, just cranking away, seeing a lot of, in my opinion, abuses of the emergency department. You know, people who don't have access to primary care. You know, I think I would see, see maybe... You know, the national average is around like 13, 14% of the mer- of emergency patients actually being needing emergency services. I would probably seeing half that, maybe 5 or 6% of patients I saw actually need emergency services. So it was a very depressing year. And applying, you know, kicking and streaming, just, you know, begging to go <laughs> to go deploy was very ironic because... Um, yeah, listen you know, to you. Like, I keep getting stuck in Hawaii. I know, right? It's exactly what I was talking about. It's not the paradise you all imagine. It's more like Breaking Bad with coconut. <laughs> well, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily the place. You know, I, I love being here. It's just it's just more or less the job. We all want to find purpose. You know, I ended up finding a, a good job here at a small hospital here. And, you know, it's, you know, it was founded by, actually, ironically, it was founded by one of my, my best friends here. His uh, grandfather founded the hospital as one of the founding, four founding surgeons. Now, Ward, we usually refer to you as our, our ER MacGyver, uh, not least for which your ability to do some amazing things with, with duct tape. But <laughs> you and you and James are both emergency medicine physicians, but it That's sounds correct. like you yeah. do a lot of very different things. So, Ward, how are you different from, from James in terms of uh, emergency medicine? Well, I think emergency medicine, like like what James was alluding to, differs a lot, depends on where you're practicing. In certain settings, certain urban settings, or certain even um, even rural settings, emergency medicine is the only place where people have access to medicine, period. As a result, we do see end up seeing a lot of acute care patients who are sick and emerge, who have true medical emergencies, in other words. Also, we end up seeing a lot of patients who just need, you know, who need medical care, even if they're not true emergencies, nobody else will see them. As you found out, Josh, when, if you're in some mount, remote regions of an island or remote regions of an inland state where the closest clinic is an hour and a half away and they have a full patient load and the next appointment is a month and a half away, they're going to go to the ER. So that, in that, I have a lot in common with James. Um, James, did now in your non-military or even your military work, did you encounter a lot of trauma? Aside from the combat engineer brigade kind of settings, the same unit also had a construction effects side. So we actually had quite a bit of a circular saw go through someone's thigh. You know that was kind of concerning. Roadside accidents, people getting run over by cars. I don't know assault with like a guy who comes in with a slit throat holding his neck with a towel kind of a situation. You know, we that's have, something uh, people can survive because television and movies have led me to believe that's it. If you touch yeah. the throat, you well, just fall down. Well, it depends on what's cut, you know? <laughs> the good thing about Hawaii, you know, as, as, you know, the good thing, there's no guns here, which is which is really nice. You know, we don't see the gunshot wounds that you see in L.A. or other metropolitan areas, you know, and a lot of it has to do with being an island. Any gun that comes on the island uh, has to come on via an airplane, usually, you know, through your luggage. Oh, and, that makes or sense. Through your, or through your... Uh, you know, your shipping stuff and you have to declare it. And so all that information is then sent to the police and you're required to either get them licensed and and uh, then the, you know, the, then there's a, so there's a huge database of who has what gun. I do do some outside work at, on Maui, you know, which has a lot of need. There is quite a bit of uh, trauma there, you know, a lot of drownings we see, uh, even here at the hospital work at you know, on Oahu, but you see a lot of drownings, a lot of uh, head injuries. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people do come to paradise to commit suicide, which is really sad. You know, Josh, you probably remember seeing all these people riding around mopeds, kind of like you're in uh, Vietnam or in Cambodia. You know, people buzzed around these little mopeds without helmets, two or three people on them at a time together, bobbing and weaving through traffic. Uh, oh, I don't our know. surgeon friend calls them organ donors. Yeah, but uh, yeah. yeah, but but the thing is, like you know, in Chicago or in uh, in California, you know. But, uh, you know, they're, they're going high speed because there's lots of open road for these 
you know, 300 uh, CC, 400. Can't really do that here. So you, you, you see a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of injuries that are kind of low impact or and they, aren't, they aren't really donating organs. It's like oh, they're, they're, they get to keep their kidneys. Yeah, they get to keep their organs, but they're missing a leg or two or they're, you know, they're impaled or they're in the hospital for a long time recovering. But, you know, it's the protocols for trauma uh, aren't aren't as advanced as uh, as they could be in other places. And it just takes a little time. It's everything gets imported from milk to patients. Exactly. I feel like everything when I the, the few times I had the uh, pleasure of visiting Hawaii, everything is on an island time. Things are just a little bit more relaxed, exactly. and a little bit I, things just felt a little bit more informal. That's so true. And you're trying to implement the, the the latest hospital administrator strategy to improve X number versus just keeping it local and keeping it friendly is kind of a good way to practice medicine. And kind of you you've been all over the place between your combat engineering and your volunteering your humanitarian efforts in Hawaii but now you're you're involved with a different humanitarian group correct yeah proud to say that I'm a founder of the small nonprofit organization called Water Hands Hope we started out as kind of a one man show and became incorporated with three or four, uh, three other friends so the four of us started this group and our first trip was seven of us and uh, our last trip past november was 15. so we're still pretty small you know we started in you know 2014 on our on our third year i guess technically our fourth year i guess we've already been so four friends you just decided you were going to go on a vacation and then doctor there uh, how, no, how did this all come together? Yeah. Well, you know what? Well, it started out as kind of a, you could probably sense a, some of my, not disgruntledness, but I didn't really feel accomplished. Like, it, you know, I, I wish I could have, I could, felt like I could have done more in my army career. Mm -hmm. So I kind of had this, like, I wasn't fully satisfied, but it was time for me to get out. And so I got out of the army and I had this year where I wasn't like uh, sure if I was going to stay in, in Hawaii or if I was going to go back to the mainland or if I was going to apply for a fellowship. So I ended up traveling. So I, you know, I, I spent time in Nepal. I spent time in Thailand. I spent time in Korea. I spent time in Papua New Guinea. How I started in uh, Papua New Guinea with a friend uh, from high school. His father is a retired orthopedic surgeon, Larry Hull, and he invited me to come over and stay with him. And uh, he wanted me to give my, my opinion on some of the things, some of the projects he was working on. And one of the projects was this medical clinic uh, that serves a population of around 10,000 uh, villagers in uh, kind of the middle of the highlands literally in the middle of nowhere in Papua New Guinea. Being a very difficult place to get to, fell in love with the place, you know, and it, I think it had to do with it being so raw and untouched and, you know, knowing that, you know, there's all these potentials for badness, but also potentials for goodness. And I could write my own story here. It's a, a place where, you know, you're looking around and seeing, hey, where are all the other NGOs at? Where are all the people that are supposed to be coming here to help these people out? And there isn't a single person. So you chose Papua New Guinea because you had a friend who whose father lived there. Mm -hmm. uh, what is what is it that Waterhands Hope actually does? So you guys founded the society. I, I left there and uh, I kind of felt I needed to come back to kind of uh, do things. And I, I showed up there. You know, I'd heard about you know some traumatic amputations that happened there because of tribal wars. And in the '90s and even early 2000s, there was a lot of tribal wars still going on. And you know, so there was a, a big need for prosthetic hands, there was also a need for medical care, like I mentioned earlier, and just basic health needs. You know, you find people, you know, I found people in these clinics just uh, more or less, um, you know, kids dying of diarrhea. You know, you find that one of three kids don't make it to, pay, to age five. And, yeah. and it's just kind of a sad kind of a place, and yet no one's there to go help. And so, you know, during the Christmas of 2013, so I just put a GoFundMe request out saying, hey, I'm going to go back by myself, and who wants to come with, or who can you donate? And within about four or five months or so, I, I raised $10,000 just off of social media. Then at that point, I was like, crap, I didn't expect to raise this much money. I guess I really have to go do this. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, now, now I'm held accountable because I have other people's money, right? And mm -hmm. so, uh, and so it, it came to the point where I, then I, I ran into a couple of friends who had heard about the story. One was a, a college student here at the University of Hawaii who heard about 3D printing technology and prosthetic hands. And another friend was a a kind of out of work, semi unemployed contractor. He just, you know, he builds build things in people's homes. And we all decided that, hey, let's kind of put together a little group. And then we had another friend who does IT kind of work, but he was a big opponent of kind of volunteering and he had experience kind of starting up a nonprofit. And so he decided, four of us were like, hey, let's start a nonprofit. Let's do it. You know, so let's incorporate and let's 
see what we could do. There's only two physicians, a physician assistant, a pre-med student, who's also a, a Marine Corps veteran. We had another University of Hawaii student looking for somewhere to volunteer and really wanted to come help out. And that was kind of the, you know, the group. That explains hope. And I love that your organization name has a pun built right in because you actually are literally and figuratively giving people hands. And nothing yeah. makes me happier than yeah. so, a pun well-placed. Through another physician here in Hawaii, through an organization called Aloha Medical Mission, uh, I was actually introduced to the so LN4 hand. It's a prosthetic hand that you could probably look up. It's www.ln-4.org, and it's the Ellen Meadows Prosthetic Hand Foundation. And it's this organization that looks for ambassadors to deliver these prosthetic hands all around the world. So I, I was given... Know, 14 of these hands to in my luggage to go bring to Papua New Guinea and I showed up and I asked two different hospitals hey do you guys have any people who need these hands because of anyone who needs a hand literally right it was great and <laughs> you show up there and you show up there and you have like I, I think the first place I showed up there's 30 people who showed up who, who had some kind of a traumatic hand amputation or arm amputation and you just like you're like whoa you know I, I can't give you all I, you know I was my plan was to do seven at this hospital and seven at another hospital I uncovered this whole domestic violence epidemic that's all throughout Papua New Guinea. And so these women, three three women, the first three people that I ended up fitting these prosthetic hands for, they had their hands chopped off by their by their ex-spouses. It has nothing women. to do with tribal wars. This has nothing to do oh. with outside incurrences. This is just the Papua New Guinea version of cops. Yeah, I mean, it's, just it's say no, that instead of guns, instead of guns, they carry these bush knives, which are machetes that are about 20 inches long. They're super sharp, but I've seen cases where people have literally had their skulls cut right off. You know, they carry them around for defense. They carry them around, obviously, for violence in this sense. And the other epidemic that's going on in Papua New Guinea is alcohol abuse. And so you have, you combine the two with uh, that being in a very poor area and seeing seeing uh, westernization happen and having people who don't have the means to get the things that they need for that everyone else is getting you know like cell phones are more important than having a toilet or running water right in some of these places well that's the thing james as an er doc i'm sure you noticed that we kind of have a pulse on what's going on in the community and uh, dare i say a majority of our come into the er with problems that are not just medical and you notice the solution isn't me- isn't just medical. What are the psychosocial issues going on in the community at the time? And I'm I'm surprised to hear that there's that much domestic violence going on now that part of the world. It's one of those things where you know you you know at the end of the day you just hey you're discharged. Here's a contact for social work. Here's a contact for an alcohol alcohol abuse center. Here's a domestic violence shelter that you can stay at. But you're in Papua New Guinea and there's none of that. So how do, what do I go? Like, where, what's the disposition, right? And I kind of felt like I needed to do something other than just uh, hit the discharge button on the computer and send them away, you know? Well, no, did Water Hands Hope start out as mostly a clinic to to no. repair started, know, applications? No, it started out actually as provide basic water access and basic prosthetic. That's where the water in Hands Hope. Yeah, and like the hope aspect was, was, was part of this clinic, I guess. So I guess you know, if you kind of wanted to like, go through each three of those things, I guess, you know, and I, and I think education and empowerment kind of ended up going in that hope. And honestly, how the name started, it was just me at home on a computer trying to start this GoFundMe thing. And I was like, what three words sound really cool together? I think it has to be three words, you know, and it blew up into this whole reinterpretation. You know, I have a friend who kind of drew it up as this Maslow's triangle of needs. Like you start with water, which symbolizes the basic needs. Your organization of- does actually work on creating access to clean water. Yeah, so that's how we started. So we started off with, as part of a rotary grant, Dr. Larry Hull actually had this rotary grant to build rain cashments for these schools, and he needed volunteers to come help build these things. And so that's that's one of the kind of the, the first things that we started was, hey, what are three things that we could do there? So we're going to do water, so we're going to build these rain cashments. Water, sanitation, hygiene kind of go together. So then we're going to build some toilets with that. We're going to build some hand wash stations. And... Then we're going to also provide some of these prosthetic hands, and then we're going to go, you know, work in this clinic for, you know, a few weeks, and that's going to be what we do. And now it's turned into much more in-depth thing where we're dealing with social justice uh, projects, we're dealing with education and empowerment projects, not just working in a clinic where we're, we're, you know, we're bringing endoscopy equipment to a surgeon, we're providing advanced trauma life support courses or advanced cardiac life support courses in the hospital setting. We're setting up uh, like kind of community, uh, I guess, continuing medical education type lectures in these hospital settings. 
We're providing uh, nurse seminars for a nursing school that's locally there. And in addition to that, we're also you know, providing water filtration. We're, we're trying to, uh, we're teaching hand washing and sanitation, basic kind of health. So there's just all these things we're doing and it's turning into this, uh, I, you know, I guess I wanted to say that it's more of a demand kind of oriented uh, organization where instead of being a typical medical nonprofit where, hey, we have surgeons and this is one specific thing that we do, or we, we have prosthetic hands, this is the one thing that we're gonna do and fit them, it's the opposite. Uh, going to a community and telling them, hey, what do you guys need? And can I go back home to Hawaii or to back to the US or back to uh, other, you know, have friends in Canada and Europe as well that are partners with us? How do we find these partners and see what skill sets we have and see what connections we have and use our social media networks and then go back and bring what they what they ask for? Or, or, or so it sounds like each each time you find something new to add to the community, you kind of listen to their feedback and then find another project. So you went from water and then you added hands and then you added seminars and then education. What's the next what's the next step that you're going to try and add or what what's the next thing that this community in the highlands what are the needs? could benefit and this from? is really exciting and I'm, I'm really excited that uh, i was able to connect with santosh about this they're asking us for a medical laboratory and it's it's not that we're going to build it for them it's not that we're going to design it for them or anything like that it's they they have the demand for it they just want the consultation and to ask how do they go best go about doing this you see an entire region and there is nationally, there's only one clinical microbiology laboratory and one clinical pathology, histology laboratory in, in the nation. And Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way, and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. And so, it's sadly, you have samples that are shipped all the way over to Port Moresby, which is, you know, a good solid two, three-hour flight. Uh, impossible to reach by land, by the way. Then these samples are then have to be run in their laboratory, and then reports are sent back, and... It could take months, if not up to a year, for some of these reports to come back. And by that time, the patient's already dead of sepsis or dead from their cancer that, you know, that they weren't able to figure out how to treat. And so how do we keep things locally? And having friends like Santosh and our other friend Susan, who are excited and who have experience working in some of these areas and designing these things, and also, you know, getting the local champions and the local support. You know, I, I just, I'm, I'm happy to announce that uh, the, the local hospital there that we're supporting they were able to actually, you know, get us six hundred thousand U.S. dollar grant from their government to actually, you know, fund and support a laboratory. So it's self-sustaining. You know, like getting that support and getting the people there who are eager, they just need the uh, to point in the right direction. And that's kind of what uh, I think. That kind of this project kind of epitomizes what uh, what we kind of want to do. And for those of you at home. Labs are something that most of us take for granted, regardless of your feelings about Obamacare or Trump care or whatever the latest, you know, healthcare du jour is. Most hospitals, even community ones, are really within only about a couple hours drive of a laboratory themselves if it's not built in. And that is how you identify bacteria, it's how you stain urine or blood, look at cholesterol levels. I mean, a very basic outfitted lab can perform a huge number of services for its surrounding community. It sounds like you're almost transitioning at least their healthcare uh, very rapidly from rural bush medicine in some ways almost to a a much more modern techniques. Now, may I ask, what is the approach medical professionals are taking in Papua New Guinea to set up labs in remote areas. Yeah, so, I, I work in a rural hospital. One of the hospitals I work at is rural. And our emergency department, we don't have a lab. We have point of care testing. And we're actually able to do a lot, but 
point of care testing as meaning you know these rapid strips are quite expensive. I don't know what what uh, we would do if we if we didn't have that that, that capability. You know, so so they have basic laboratory capabilities. So they're able to kind of run, they're able to run a CBC or a chem panel, which, you know, to the layperson is more or less uh, to look at the types of cells that are in your blood, and also to look at the types of electrolytes or you know different markers for kidney disease and liver function in your blood. And so those tests are able, you know, so they're able to make a clinical judgment based off of those. It's the microbiology and histology taking it one step further, you know, uh, you know, having a patient who is hospitalized and ha suffering from an infection and unfortunately having only basic archaic antibiotics that are, that are available to them and with these growing epidemics of multi-drug resistant tuberculosis and, you know, among other kind of infections that are occurring, you know, how do you know what's growing in their blood or what's, what's growing in their, in their wound that, uh, that, that we need to treat effectively? And, it's also a good way to uh, provide cost-effective medicine because instead of wasting antibiotics on a on a wound that may be resistant uh, to that drug, you could actually isolate which specific antibiotic will work for that infection. You've worked in in a lot of different regions and had some sounds like exposure to tropical medicine. What sort of things are unique or endemic to Papua New Guinea? One thing that is very we'll just start with the new and the weird stuff first. I guess that's always kind of more sexy to talk about, but Necrotizing enterocolitis really did ring a bell in my brain, and, and I had to, had to really dig deep to, to remember what it was from medical school. And it's a clostridial infection that affects uh, newborns primarily. And it was really sad to actually see quite a few of these cases in the, the pediatric wards, and just realizing that these kids have this like flesh-eating bacteria. In them. There was an, uh, a vaccine for it, and I, I believe was heavily administered by the Australian government in the 80s and 90s. And they supposedly rid the entire country of of, of this. And uh, so then they end up destroying the vaccine for some reason. And so, and then there's this growing trend of it. And it's actually occurs by, uh, unfortunately, with the diet. And, you know, the, P the Papua New Guinea people are very protein deficient. And they've uh, kind of um, managed to kind of deal with their protein deficiency in different means. And Unfortunately, one of the means is unfortunate for their kids to die off early. So the ones that survive are the ones that are able to actually live off of a low-protein diet. And then at the same time, they have these boluses of high protein through festivals or through different weddings or whatnot. So probably once a month or once every few months, they'll get this massive bolus of protein. And unfortunately, it's not always cooked. And uh, the, the soft nibbly bits are the pieces that the babies get and the kids get. And inside that is, is usually some type of uh, gut bacteria or clostridium from the soil, and that actually infects these kids. Um, now, necrotizing enterocolitis is generally thought of, uh, in, in the States, is mm -hmm. generally thought of as a disease limited to preemies or really, really young infants, like one to two day olds. Is that different in Papua New Guinea? Is it that? Is. It is, and it has to do with uh, being, being protein deficient. And oh, not I see. I see, I see. Yeah, well, I mean, we hardly, just for, for reference, we hardly, or our listeners who are not medical professionals, we hardly would see that in a older infant or a child here in the States. It's not a common infection in the U.S. Right. You know, one of the, the requirements CDC Yellow Book and the World Health Organization is to actually get a Japanese encephalitis vac uh, virus vaccine. Risk of that is, uh, you know, you, if you're going to be in the country for more than 30 days, then it's, it's a requirement. But you see a lot of these weird viral kind of syndromes. And, you know, obviously without having a lot of virology and, you know, PCR and you know, really fancy kind of tests, you know, you just kind of, hey, this guy has some kind of viral disease. I'm not sure what it is. I hope it doesn't kill him, but uh, we'll watch him in the clinic or watch him in the hospital for a few days and give him supportive care. And try to roll out some bacterial infections with uh, what limited labs we have and go from there. So that's, I think, I think just the weird viral infections are kind of rampant quite a bit. And, you know, that's kind of one thing that's always kind of intrigued me to see kind of what kind of weird viruses, not only, you know, is there such a weird amount of flora and fauna that you'll see in Papua New Guinea, you know, just from the birds and the animals and the plants and stuff, but you also probably see all kinds of weird viruses that may be where the, the next emerging, you know, scary virus comes from. But, you know, there are like, Viruses, viruses like uh, you know dengue and other hemorrhagic fevers that are kind of emerging in Papua New Guinea. There's definitely malaria is definitely a big one, and it's definitely limited to the coastal regions. So we're very lucky in the highlands where we're at that elevation where we don't have to worry about certain mosquitoes 
kind of uh, creeping up. Oh, malaria is boring. We've, you know, it's a shock every time I come back and I don't have it these the, days. The, 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 the sad thing is, is uh, looking at how the government distributes medical supplies and medical care, AusAid, which is, you know, the, the Australian version of USAID, gives quite a bit of medical supplies to the clinic that we're at. So we're very, for, uh, we're very fortunate and blessed that we don't have to uh, lug a bunch of medical supplies with us. It's just a matter of not having the people who know how to actually administer these medications or, you know, or drugs. You end up showing up there and you look in the stockpile and it's like half of it is like anti-malarials. And you're just kind of wondering, like, does anybody who sent this medication know that we don't see a lot of malaria here, you know? And it's usually the one or two persons uh, that go to the coastal area and then come back infected. So we do see it, but it's just not a very um, common thing to see up there. So uh, let's let's get a little bit sensational for a moment. I mean, obviously, there's certainly going to be worms and viruses and a lot of tropical infections, which I'm looking forward to learning about when Drs. Ward and Santosh and I come out there. But one of the things I think that people do remember about Papua New Guinea, or at least one of the ones that it used to be known for in the medical community, is that's where the disease Kuru was discovered, one of the earliest known prion diseases or misfolded proteins. And it was found in the Foray tribe of Papua New Guinea, who at the time was practicing funerary cannibalism. So, you know, some real life, not not serial killers, not this is specifically part of a religious cultural rite. They don't serve people on the restaurant menu. Or maybe they do, James. Have you met any cannibals? So the the only cannibal that I met was actually in Brisbane, Australia, which was really weird. Uh, it was a guy from uh, the island of Tonga. Unfortunately, I was not able to meet any um, Papua New Guinean cannibals, but it was it was just an interesting thing. And and I going back to that story, this this Tongan gentleman comes up to us and asks us what we're doing or what we're from, and you know, being Asian looking anyway, you know, like you know, the, I just don't belong in Australia. So everyone's asking me like, hey, what are you doing here? Kind of a thing. And so this other other odd-looking fella, he's uh he's from Tonga, comes up to me and he's like, hey, you know what, you know what's going on? And told him we're going to Papua New Guinea, and he immediately refers to the whole practice of kuru in Papua New Guinea, and he says that uh, you know he you know his family would do it in Tonga as well. So it'd just be interesting to see some of the, you know I don't know too much about Tonga, but was he giving you dietary advice like rosemary and two splashes of? <laughs> well, well, what, 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 he actually, you know, right? And you're going to laugh. We were in a Hungry Jack's, which is the Australian version of Burger King, which seemed oh, funny. I, oh, we know Hungry Jack's. We went to Hungry Jack's, yeah. We actually went to a Hungry – I went to Hungry Jack's right before our uh, tour at the morgue. And uh, <laughs> the comedian said, well, speaking of rotten flesh, you guys just came back from Hungry Jack's. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, you know, it's very similar to – in uh, you know, the practices are very similar in the sense that uh, you actually – you know, they practice cannibalism here in Hawaii as well, you know, you know in the sense that – Captain Cook, you know, after they conquered him, killed him, they actually ate him. You know, the um, and the idea behind it is to actually gain the strength and the knowledge of your of your enemies. Historically, and, that has not been proven. There was associations with saving rudimentary bones and flesh and cooking flesh of dead enemies, but not actually consuming it. And he had Captain Cook's leg was returned, and it was meant as a gesture of honoring in some of his things. So so I'm going to dispute you from the historical record only because I get really nerdy about some of this history. Um, <laughs> well, you talk with the locals, the locals will say something different, you know? Yeah, well, <laughs> and, and again, I don't live in Hawaii, but I'm just saying the tribe has been studied and they've said probably was cooked, unlikely to be eaten. <laughs> well, as far as you know, today is is this cultural practice still going on in Tonga or Papua New Guinea? You know, if you ask somebody, and we've had that uh, that taboo question asked, you know, and the reason why I say taboo is that the people of Papua New Guinea are, are proud. And not only that, they actually, sadly, are trying to move on from their traditional practices and kind of adopt Western practices. And and so, you know, I, you know the reason I say sadly is because you see a lot of these, you know, travel practices being lost, you know, at a, an alarming pace. And... Mm -hmm. Not that eating people is a good practice you want to keep, but trying to find trying to find yeah. someone who actually knows of it is kind of hard these days. And I definitely, you know, as a side project, it would be very cool to see us kind of explore that, you know, and ask. And 
really kind of um, and it's hard also because you're in a country where you know 99 percent of the people will say that they're christian and it has a lot to do with uh, the term of um, what i call car um it's not, I, I didn't come up with the term but cargo cult something that you should really look up a guilt by association or i guess a benefit by association kind of a practice well, I mean, uh, to be know, fair, Christianity has a lot of ritual cannibalism too. Of course, I'm referring to the the transubstantiation claims of the of the wafer and wine to mm -hmm. to body, body and blood. Um, yep. Yeah. So I, this is one of the few times, guys. I'm actually not being facetious, but you know, we have a long, rich history of of ritual cannibalism. It's just not done with uh, close relatives. Exactly. I'm sure you you know you guys all know the the, the practice in Papua New Guinea is there to kind of pass on the kind of the, the knowledge and it's one of those things where you know the whole idea of you know nature and nurture right so you're you know the whole aspect of it is all these things that you've learned you want to pass on uh to your you know to your offspring so you know it's, it's just a i guess it was the practice was there to to make sure that um you know that things you learned in your life would be passed on to your family have you seen any unique cultural practices from any of the 80 different tribes that live in Papua New Guinea during your visits there? Yeah, so it was very exciting to, uh, to you know, we were very fortunate and it was actually timed, uh, it was intentionally timed for us to be there during the, the Mount Hagen show, which is a, also called the Sing Sing. I guess the idea behind the Sing Sing, you know, there's definitely different interpretations as to kind of how they began, but it kind of began as kind of like a UN kind of a gathering. So you have all these tribes that are warring against each other or whatnot, and it's a way for them to come come together, call a truce, and discuss things, whether it's politics or whether it's agriculture or how to grow things better, or just to kind of settle disputes. You know, have these little contests or competitions. Looking at some of the practices, you know, you see the different uniqueness of how they dress or how they. You know, you have the mud men of Garoka, you have some of the crocodile men of Sepik, and you know they have these outfits where they you know, dress up as uh, different characters and it was really interesting was how world war ii really shaped Papua new guinea and uh, you have an entire tribe of people who dress up completely as head to toes wearing black uh, some type of black oil to make themselves look kind of like shadows and they actually will uh, carry these uh, wooden cutouts of uh, rifles and they'll go around it i guess in the forest uh, the, the practice behind it was for them to haunt the Japanese soldiers that were kind of in their region. And they kind of evolved into this uh, practice where now they just go around marching as these shadows uh, carrying these uh, wooden rifles around. And it's to kind of uh, give them power because they were able, to, they, they believe that that practice actually, uh, you know, made the Japanese leave. Going back to the whole cargo cult, you know, I'll just spend a couple minutes, if you don't mind, yeah. talking about that. And, and it'll kind of explain to you kind of how, how the people are shaped and how they're kind of culture unfortunately has been evolved in maybe in a bad way but it's it's the idea of uh, like I said uh, kind of um, guilt by association and the idea behind it is, is that in World War II you had American mostly American uh, paratroopers that would land in the jungles of uh, Papua New Guinea they would build these airfields you know, the tribal people looking on see these white kind of ghost type people come in and they build these airfields and they build these old buildings and uh, these airplanes, magical airplanes, would come down and they would uh, drop off cargo. You know, put two, two, two and two together, very similarly to the, the movie The Gods Must Be Crazy. These cults developed that they feel that, you know, if you build it, they will come. So they decided to build all these runways all across the, the, uh, the entire country in hopes of planes coming and dropping off this magical cargo that has, like, guns and chocolate and cigarettes and all these alcohol and all these things that are, that, that, you know, that are desirable. And so you have all these airstrips, and supposedly Papua New Guinea has one of the highest numbers of airstrips per capita in the world. The idea was is that if they, they even actually took to the point of acting like they were doing some of the business practices that they saw these soldiers do, and then World War II ends, and then you have all of these airfields just there and no planes are coming. And so they kind of evolved into this religion of almost like a savior, like you have to maintain these airstrips because the Messiah will come back. Uh, these Christian missionaries that came in talking about Jesus the Messiah, and it's kind of turned into this idea of I'm, I'm associated with this religion or I'm associated with this cult. Fast forward to present day time, you have these oil, natural gas kind of companies like Exxon or Chevron or Shell coming there to unfortunately to exploit the country of their natural resources. And they hire local people to do their jobs. And 
you have these people who are get hired on the job, but then they feel like, hey, I'm, I'm part of the group now. I'm guaranteed a salary, you know, instead of I'm hired and I, I need to work and then I need to actually get paid for what I work. So you have some of these scary stories where you hear about this guy who uh, was fired because he's not producing at work you know, at, at the oil field or, you know, the natural gas plant or wherever they're at. He comes out and he pulls a machete out and, and he realizes, hey, I'm going to go kill a bunch of people. So he goes on this this massacre of all these workers coming into work one morning. And they, he says, hey, uh, you guys need employees now. You guys should hire me. I'm here to work now. You know, it's just a complete <laughs> dis- disconnect. Wow. Now that is a go-getter. Right? Very proactive. But right? <laughs> this... <laughs> So it's just, and you know, and then and then you hear you hear also. There's always these stories of the Australian version of the story is a twenty-something-year-old girl who led this expedition of these Australian trekkers through this uh, Kokoda Track, which is a very famous Australian historical kind of trail through Papua New Guinea. They woke up one morning to find all of their porters and their guides all hacked to death by the by this tribe. But in the end, if you actually ask the locals about what happened, it was more or less she'd hired foreign porters. And you know, didn't really have the authority to be in that travel area. So it was, uh, it was, and the irony of it was, is that at the very end of their story is that supposed tribe that hacked these people to death at the end of it were like, hey, we're here to carry your stuff now. You guys need a, you guys need a guide now? We're here to help. We've gotten rid of the competition. We're here to work. I'm you know? never going to an interview in Papua New Guinea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interviewing with Papua New Guinea. <laughs> I just I'm just putting it out there. Right? Yeah, no, but, you should hire yeah, me. But, but, Why? But, 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 <laughs> you know, it's okay just, if you don't want to. That's fine. If someone else wants the job more, really. That's pretty much yeah. So so the moral of the story more more or less is, is I've ever really heard of any violence against tourists or violence against foreigners. It's it's this disconnect. You know, it's the it's the whole idea of communication barrier there a little bit, you know? I suppose, but uh, I think that <laughs> that interview is a good place to to end at least this early episode. So with regards to kind of both island medicine and humanitarian medicine, uh, we could easily talk to you for hours, and, and we will uh, after we get back from from Papua New Guinea ourselves, traveling with water, hands, okay. hope. But what's to come? First and foremost, James, thank you so much for, for both setting this up and giving us the opportunity to come along with you on it. And if anyone else wants to join or is interested in learning about these kinds of opportunities, what would you tell them? I would say uh, go to our newly built website, uh, www.waterhandshope.org, and or you could email me at uh, james.ham at gmail.com. Okay, and we'll include those in the show notes. And the last thing we always like to close off with in can you give us a, a just the tip from from your travels anywhere in the world, a favorite travel story or experience or something that if people have a chance to visit, they shouldn't miss out on? I guess I kind of have a, a funny story, I guess, about being in the military. It was in the Philippines traveling on the humanitarian operation I was telling you about. And we're in these vans and they made sure that we're in civilian clothes. We're not, you know, we, we don't stand out like we're in the military. And they had Filipino army and Filipino police escorts with us that were supposedly, um, you know, there to protect us in case something happened. And per the joint forces agreement, we weren't allowed to carry our own weapons. So we're just kind of there at the mercy of the people protecting us. And in any military unit uh, that we could, they call us the special staff. So it's the, the doc, the lawyer and the chaplain, kind of the three of us kind of all hang out together because uh, we're not really necessary operational people, I guess. And so we're in this van and we're going from point A to point B and there's a like a 20 something year old Philippine soldier in plain clothes, but you know, with me and he's got his little pistol in his, in his little fanny pack, which is really funny. And it's pointed right at me, which is funnier. I was like, hey, can you point that the other way? You know, just in case. And then he looks at me, he's like, oh, don't worry. And I'm like, why? You know, why shouldn't I worry? And he like shows it to me and he has no clip and he has no bullets in this thing. Uh, I ask him, I'm like, well, why don't you have bullets? Aren't you supposed to be protecting us? He says, no, we're, you know, we don't, we're not supposed to be carrying bullets. So here we are going through these kind of these shady areas. And here I am thinking we're being protected by these you know, military guys. And I asked the lawyer, I was like, aren't they supposed to be protecting us? And so he goes through and he realizes that typical military foobar fashion, the agreement was that they were supposed to be carrying weapons, but it said nothing about ammunition. <laughs> <laughs> so leave it up to the ignorant, non-military experienced doc to kind of uh, uncover this huge snafu in their in their plan, you know? What? No, so, we didn't uh, think about that. Bullet, bullets are dangerous. <laughs> we're just here to carry weapons. 
Uh, that, was, that was my contribution to the safety and security of Pacific region. Sounds like you left the Philippines unscathed. <laughs> <laughs> it's even funnier because they had tried to explain to us all these uh, different terrorist organizations. You know, we're in the security brief and I'm just like falling asleep because I have no idea what they're talking about. And I think at the time, Abu Sayyaf had just taken over Al-Qaeda as the number one terrorist organization in the Philippines. Like a close third was the Mindanao Islamic Liberation Front. And they kept calling him the MILF. And the, 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 the lawyer and I are just cracking up <laughs> laughing the whole time in this, in, this, in this brief. And we're just like, and then it's even funnier because then these, the Filipino counterparts, they're looking at us like, man, these guys are hardcore because they're just laughing at the face of these uh, terrorist organizations, you know? Take that, MILF. <laughs> you know, we're just like <laughs> trying hard not to laugh. And like, and everyone, even, even the Americans, they, you could tell that they're kind of trying to, but they're not, they're very, being very professional, right? And I just couldn't hold myself you know i'm just cracking up laughing and and our interpreter kept asking us this like why is this so funny and i didn't really feel like i could explain it to them you know? <laughs> that's go ask your parents the milfs are here i have protection <laughs> well james thank you so much again i look forward to getting a chance to actually meet up with you in papua new guinea this september when the travel medicine group will be venturing out to take part in this project with Water Hands Hope. Looking forward to this trip. It's going to be an awesome trip. So for everyone else, as always, we love to hear your comments, questions, concerns, and feedback. We would love for you to support us emotionally, spiritually, and financially. You can find the links to do all those things in the show notes, which include our Twitter, our Facebook, our Patreon page. For donations as low as a dollar a month, that's 12 bucks a year, you get whole extra bonus material episodes. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from all my co-hosts. Our theme music is by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Happy travels. <laughs>